a conversation about the legal issues that matter to you. This is Stanford Legal with Pam Carlin and Joe Bankman. Welcome to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect all of us every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman, and today we're going to be talking about privacy and about police body cameras. Pam, today almost everybody carries a cell phone, so let's start with the privacy issue. If I'm a suspicious-looking character, can the police ask to look at my cell phone? And what does it mean to look at it? Can they download all the emails? Well, you know, the police can always ask. The question is whether they can look at your cell phone without your saying yes first. Uh, and there, there are a couple of cases that have been at the Supreme Court in recent years about cell phones that illustrate this point. There are actually cases that our clinic at Stanford, the Supreme Court litigation clinic, has been involved in. So let me tell you a little bit about the stories of the cases. First case involves a guy named David Riley, and he was pulled over for a traffic uh, offense. But ultimately, that kind of escalated into an arrest. And the police then looked at his cell phone. They saw movies on his cell phone that suggested he'd been involved in a homicide. They looked through the entire list of his contacts, and they saw little indications that they thought had something to do with gangs, uh, gang activity. So when they search a cell phone, what they mean by that is not just look to see if you've got like a, a razor blade slipped into, the, is slipped into the back of the carrier, but it's look at all the stuff on that cell phone. And that can involve stuff that's up in the cloud as well as stuff that's down on the, down on the uh, phone itself. The other case I want to just mention briefly so you get a little sense of what's going on is even when you're not on your cell phone, your cell phone is talking to the cell phone company. So every 30 seconds or so, your cell phone pings a tower. And those towers give the location where the cell phone is. That's how, for example, if you need directions or stuff, it can tell you, turn right in 200 feet. So what happens there is even when you're not on the cell phone, if you're carrying your cell phone with you, every 30 seconds, somebody knows exactly where you are. And those records, which are called cell phone site lo location information, are held by your cell phone provider. So somebody could find out if they could get those records where you are every 30 seconds. And can, and can they find that out? Oh, they can find that out. The question is, when can they find that out? So uh, we have a guest with us today. Tell us about our guest, Joe. Our guest today is our colleague and good friend, Bob Weisberg. Bob is the Edwin E. Heddleson Professor of Law and the co-director of the Stanford Criminal Justice System. Uh, Bob, along with other Stanford faculty, David Skolansky and Debbie Malcomel, have looked into the issue of privacy and law enforcement. So, Bob, I want to start with something kind of basic, which is the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution says basically the police can't conduct a search without a warrant. Uh, but there seem to be a lot of loopholes in the Fourth Amendment. So could you tell us about the one that was at issue in Riley? Sure. Uh, there are plenty of exceptions to the requirement of a warrant for a search, but let's roll it back to the predicate in Riley. First, he was arrested. And although this may not be obvious uh, to many people, warrants, so-called arrest warrants, are rarely needed for arrests. They generally need it if uh, you arrest a suspect in his house, but otherwise, you know, the average arrest, which occurs usually it's in someone's car or on the street, does not require a warrant. So the officer, as you uh, indicated, uh, arrests Riley. 
Now, what else can the officer do just at that point? Well, there's this thing that many people have heard of called a stop and frisk. Uh, the officer can pat down Riley just to make sure that there's nothing that can be felt from the outside, which might turn out on the inside to be a weapon that could be used. But that doesn't permit a search. And certainly reaching into his pockets uh, or reaching into any containers he has, a briefcase, a bag, whatever, that would constitute a search. And usually you need probable cause and normally you a, need warrant a warrant for a but, search. But here you didn't have Except one. Except that one of the great exceptions to the warrant requirement, indeed to the probable cause requirement, is the so-called search incident to arrest. If I otherwise legally arrest you, I have probable cause, which the officer did in the case of Riley. I can search your person, as the phrasing goes, and the, uh, the effects uh, on your body or right next to them. The rationale would be that, uh, number one, well, as with the frisk, but even more so, I need to make sure you don't have a weapon. But also on the theory that there may be evidence of the crime on you or in your bag, we have to make sure you don't destroy it. Now, how feasible it is that the uh, suspect could destroy it at that point is another question. Uh, so the Supreme Court has long held then that if somebody is arrested, uh, he can be searched, incident to arrest, even if the uh, crime for which he's being arrested wouldn't logically have any evidence on, uh, on Right, him. but that's for the danger part, right? No, well— That's—in other words, there, there are two reasons you might search somebody. One is to prevent something dangerous happening, right. and the other is to prevent them from destroying the evidence. So, like, if you stop somebody and you think he's got betting slips in his pocket, right. he might eat them if you don't search him. Right. Uh, but the, the doctrine has gotten extended so that, you know, what if somebody's arrested for insider trading, but he really is arrested? He could still be searched incident to arrest, even though, you know, you'd have to rely on the danger Right, prime. but generally when you find stuff on him, yeah. you know, you're allowed to look through his wallet, sure. right? So what's different about a cell phone? Well, uh, the government argued that a cell phone isn't really very different from a container. It is a kind of container. It has stuff in it. And in the container case, you know, if it's a bag, the police could look anywhere in it. Needless to say, Riley, uh, you know, argued, uh, the Stanford Clinic helped him argue, obviously, that, oh, come on now, there's a difference. Think of the common meme, oh, my gosh, I've gotten my whole life in that phone. Uh, that turned to be out to be a pretty good way of capturing the argument that if we could put it quantitatively or perhaps qualitatively, the data on your phone can't be compared to little objects in your bag. So if that's what the Supreme Court did with Riley, it seems like they're protecting our right to privacy with cell phones. Now there's another case coming down the pike that our clinic is involved with called Carpenter. Right. Why is that different? The police themselves directly searched in Riley, okay? And there was nothing voluntary at all on Riley's part. Uh, the Carpenter case has as its predicate an old case called uh, Smith, Smith versus Maryland, where the, f the police thought that uh, Smith had been making some phone calls where the phone calls could be relevant to a crime. The police were not wiretapping his phones. They didn't even try to in terms of real-tone wiretapping. They simply wanted to know what numbers he had called and what numbers had called his number. And they went to the phone company. There used to be a single entity called the phone company back in the day. And they pretty much said, you have no choice but to give us this information. And they stuck on the technology something called a pen register, which recorded those numbers. Smith said, well, 
this is a violation of my right to privacy. I have privacy not just in my phone conversations but in those numbers. And the court said, no, that's not true because, after all, you voluntarily gave access to those phone numbers to the phone company. You knew darn well they were reading them and using them. Heck, that's the way they enumerated things in your bill. And you therefore, in effect, waive your, waived your right of privacy to those numbers, and therefore you have no right to complain that they were then disseminated to somebody else. So, oh, Go ahead, Joe. <laughs> so are you telling me that every time I give information to anyone else, I've already waived my right to privacy? Well, that, that describes a lot of things that the Supreme Court has said. For example, uh, uh, you know, the government can't wiretap a phone conversation between you and me without a very specialized warrant if neither of us has consented to uh, the, uh, the recording. Uh, but if you're one of those ratfink informants, and I don't know that, you're my faithless friend, I'm talking to you and say, Joe, I got, I got to just air some things out with you. I got to tell you the terrible things I've done. And you listen very sympathetically, but as a ratfink, you're recording everything. I voluntarily disclose that information to you. I and was so fooled. I think the question here is going to be whether your phone records are different in some way. Uh, you're listening to Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight 121. We're talking about privacy with Bob Weisberg from Stanford Law School and Stanford's Criminal Justice Center. So, Bob, in Carpenter, here's what I wonder. Why isn't the fact that you give these records to the to the uh, cell phone company or that the cell phone company makes these records in the first place the ballgame? Uh, the government thinks it is. Uh, and if you compare it to Riley, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Carpenter, who, by the way, of course, got busted for a crime, in this case a robbery, in part because they were able to determine where he had been at the relevant time. And wasn't it ironic that where what he was alleged to have robbed was a bunch of radio shacks? Yes, it was. <laughs> uh, he, he makes an argument, well, this is different uh, because uh, I should have some right of privacy in where I go. And uh, after all, where I go during the course of the day in my car without, as long as I have my cell phone, becomes a kind of biography of my entire life at a certain point. Indeed, in this case, uh, on this issue, Carpenter is like some other cases where uh, the police uh, use uh, some kind of GPS tracker that they've affixed to uh, somebody's car. And the point is, yes, you're always in public. So in theory, you can complain if somebody sees you. But if by this mechanism, the government is accumulating endless information about all the places you've been, there's a kind of change from quantity to quality. Can, can I jump in there, Bob, for just a second, which is one of the things I thought was really interesting in the GPS case that you're alluding to, is that all nine justices thought it was a search, but they disagreed as to why. And it was really interesting. Half of the justices, four of them, thought it was a search because it violated your reasonable expectation of privacy. But four of them thought it was only a search because they physically put the device on your car, whereas here you voluntarily put the device in your pocket. Well, that decision in Jones, so that part of the decision in Jones is very funny because I, like many, think that the uh, Supreme Court just chickened out altogether because what everybody thought they were going to have to decide was if the police follow you and every moment of observation of you is by itself legal, it's not a Fourth Amendment violation, at what point is the accumulation, the endlessness of the observation change things? 
And I think the court chickened out. They weren't quite ready to decide that. So they came up with, uh, if I use, can use a, you know, a, uh, a technical term, a cockamamie excuse. And that is, oh, my gosh, something different and horrible happened to him. His property was physically trespassed on, the property being about two inches of metal near the uh, gas tank of his car when they stuck the thing in. But, of course, with GPSs, they don't have to do that. And now we don't have to do it with cell phones because you don't have to stick anything on anyone. That is correct. Since the phone company always has a record of where they we are. They always know where you are. I kind of wonder whether these are the sort of cases where the justices, when they hear the oral argument and everything, they ask themselves, could this happen to me? And, I, I and, think and they that affects often, where they go. They often do. And there are some cases, uh, you know, involving social custom where, you know, maybe back in the day, some of the justices seem to, you know, be deriving the notion of social customs, you know, from when they prepped it, uh, you know, Andover rather than the way most people live. But uh, here it's, it's partly the problem that, you know, people of a certain generation just don't know technology very well. Uh, and they do seem a little befuddled. And one possible explanation for why they went unanimous in favor of Riley in the Riley case is we don't understand the nuances of the differences among these phones. They're You're listening to Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight 121. We're talking about cell phones and privacy with Bob Weisberg from Stanford Law School. Joe, what were you going to ask about? Nothing. You were going to ask about oh, I nothing. See. Oh, Oh. <laughs> Well, I'm going to ask anyway on the thought that, you know, we've got a tape here. Uh, any predictions, Bob, how the court will go on this one? No. They're going to argue about this thing called the third-party doctrine, which is another name for this voluntary disclosure uh, business. Uh, and this one is harder to predict than uh, Riley because it could have very considerable scope involving all kinds of technologies, including, for example, the email that you send out or receive that's stored on the server of your internet service provider, uh, which right now under many circumstances can be looked at by the government without a full search warrant. Uh, think of stuff you put in the cloud. We're always dealing with third parties. And of course, the argument is going to be it's not really voluntary disclosure after a while. The uses of all these technologies is a necessity of life. But how far that goes, it's kind of scary for the court, I think. Can I ask you about that as well, which is you put all this stuff up on the server and the company that you're dealing with is doing all these analytics on it to figure out what ads to send you, uh, how to target you and like. Is there something different about the government or should we be just as worried about the loss of privacy there? Well, obviously, you know, many people are very worried about the loss of privacy uh, with Google or whatever. Number one, uh, uh, Theoretically, a little more than theoretically, uh, they are not the government. Therefore, they're not bound by the Fourth Amendment. Uh, they, uh, in theory, are bound by whatever contracts. Don't you read the 10,000 words of terms of service and realize you're consenting to these things? Oh, maybe not. I'm the only person still with a flip phone. If the government tried to figure out from my phone records where I am, they'd think I was at home 99.9% .9 of the time. So you're right. It's a problem. You're listening to Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight 121. We're talking about privacy and law enforcement and technology. Coming up, a discussion with Bob Weisberg about body cams on police officers. Answers for the legal questions you've been thinking about. This is Stanford Legal. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. It's great that you're here with us. We're talking about privacy and technology and law enforcement here on Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight 121. 
We've got Bob Weisberg with us here from Stanford Law School and the Criminal Justice Center. Uh, and Bob, you know, one of the things that has been so much in the news recently is police interactions with civilians where they use deadly force on civilians. And the claim is they shot somebody who was running away. They tasered somebody for no reason or the like. Um, tell us a little bit about the move towards having body cameras on police and what that's meant. The idea is that if there's a publicly visible record, first of all, that will help resolve the dispute about who started the fight, whether the police officer legitimately used deadly force. Uh, the other part of it, though, which has become a new area of research, is that if the police and everyone else know that body cams are recording these encounters, this fact alone will affect the behavior of the police. Uh, one hopes in a uh, benign way. And, Bob, I know there's some studies that have been done that give quite striking results on that. Yes. Now, uh, let me just throw in one quick predicate. In, in a sense, the background to this was when the police started videotaping most interrogations of suspects. That's done all over the country now almost all the time. There was a similar behavioral effect. But here the idea is that the police are simply more careful when they know they're being filmed. Second of all, the fact that they're being filmed makes them not just more careful but more thoughtful. They've been told not to engage in any racial bias, to be race neutral when they observe or interpret somebody's behavior. And the notion of it sinks in to some extent. In addition, in a very well-run police department, uh, the body cam videos are going to be uh, evaluated by the police officer and her supervisors, not just hers, but possibly through a training session, lots of them. And police officers begin, begin to recognize, oh, now that I see this objectively on tape, I realize there wasn't a good reason to strike at that point. Gee, it's possible that I was really affected by racial bias. And of course, there are various psychological experiments that could be done, you know, changing the skin color of people in simulations. I mean, I read a, about a study in Rialto, California, which is a small town, and they put body cams, I think it was on half of the officers they had and not on the other half, and they did it kind of randomly. And it turned out that the folks who used, uh, who had body cams on them used force two and a half times less than the folks who didn't. And your explanation for that is that they thought more about it or they were more worried that they were being watched or what? I don't know if the difference between those two factors has been sorted out. I'm sure they contribute. I mean, obviously, you know, most cops are pretty honest and decent, but there are bad cops who will do things only if they think they're not being noticed. But I do think that the ongoing uh, experience with the cameras, the training sessions with the tapes and so on and so on does have a salutary effect. You know, we're looking at this so far from kind of the point of view of the kind of criminal defense bar, the defendant, someone stopped by a cops. But it seems like these cameras are probably good for cops, too, because they must be subject to a lot of false claims by Absolutely. kind of bad actors. Absolutely. And this is relevant, again, to that background story about the videotape confessions. Uh, if somebody, either side, is doing something wrong, it will be there's a good chance it will be revealed by uh, the tape. Uh, I would guess in the majority of cases where there's a dispute and the videotape uh, from the body cam, let's say, is introduced or is made available, it actually exonerates the cops. So on the whole, the cops realize this may be good for us. I kind of wonder about one thing, though, here, Bob, which is, um, as I recall, after DNA evidence came into 
uh, it came into prominence. What would happen is juries would expect to see DNA evidence. I think some people call it the CSI, the CSI effect, effect from people who watch CSI and assume right. there's going to be DNA in every right. crime. Yes. If the defendant's DNA isn't right. there, he couldn't have done it, even right. if it was, you know, uh, a crime where you don't leave any DNA behind. Right. And I wonder whether you think something like that could happen with police stuff, whereas it, where if people don't see it on film, they don't think it happened. Well, a couple of things. First of all, interestingly, somebody did some research on the so-called CSI effect and purports to have disproved the CSI effect, that juries don't really expect it that much. The difference is that DNA is rare uh, as evidence in a crime, and it has such a dramatic effect. Body cams are becoming so widely used that the expectation that a body cam will videotape the encounter, at least at the time of arrest, is actually pretty realistic. Uh, so I'm not sure if that's going to produce as much of a problem. You're listening to Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight 121. We're talking today about body cams and police officers with Bob Weisberg from Stanford Law School. You know, Bob, you were talking about whether people are going to expect body cams yes. and how good they are. Is there any danger that body cams are like any other film and you've got the, like an auteur theory of the director controls Abs things? Absolutely. And it's unlikely that legislation or court decisions could address this. This is going to all have to be worked out through administrative training within police departments. you got two things going on there. Uh, number one, how is the camera positioned? Where is it aimed? What is it showing? How broad and objective a picture is it showing? Second of all, how is the tape edited? And can we be sure that when the police turn the tape over on voluntary grounds or under some kind of court order, are they showing the whole thing or is it edited? Police departments are going to have to establish publicly visible protocols about how this is done. I remember a case. It wasn't a body cam. It was a police car cam. Right. It's a case that went up to the Supreme Court a couple of years ago called Scott against Harrison. It was it was a chase of a guy. The police chased a guy in his car. They rammed the back of his car trying to stop the car using something called a pit maneuver. The guy ended up a quadriplegic. He brought a lawsuit against the police. And uh, there was a tape. Right. And half the judges who watched the tape said, oh, this guy was a threat to other people. The police could use deadly force against him. And half the judges who watched the tape said, oh, this, this guy, yeah, he was driving a little fast, but no justification to ram him and paralyze him for the rest of his life. Is the same kind of thing going to happen with body cams? It can. So, you know, Joe was asking about, I love the auteur line, you know, that there's some, you know, aesthetic shaping of the product. Uh, indeed, by the way, I fear that defense lawyers will start reading, uh, you know, postmodern deconstructionist literature and say that visual reality is just a construct. It's all a question of point of view. Okay, let's not go there. Let's uh, not. But there would also be the problem, as Pam suggests, of differential interpretation of what is seen. All I can say is at a certain point, we're just dealing with the vagaries of human perception. It still has to be a net plus that there is, if it is objectively done, something visual there. You know, one thing I read is a study where a psychologist from, I think it was Ohio University, uh, showed uh, some experimental subjects videos and some focused on what would be the defendant there and others focused on the interrogator. And it turns out that whoever was focused on was viewed less favorably. Right. So actually, if the camera's facing one way, you're going to get one result. Right. The camera's facing the other way, another result. 
It, it's a problem, and I don't know whether there are ways of arranging the angle of the camera to vary uh, the perspective or to neutralize it in some way. That will be a problem. I would say, though, that it's still probably a net plus, and I can imagine, as for example with eyewitness identification testimony, judges will be instructed in how to instruct juries to try to overcome misperceptions like that. Yeah, I, I, if I could just jump in here for a sec. One of the things that's really interesting is the extent to which science influences how we think about evidence. And there's so many different areas in which in which that happens, and perce people's perceptions is one of them. Right. Uh, but that is probably unavoidable, especially if we have a jury system. I'll still suggest two things. Number one, the question of whether we should have body cams or whether we should have all these other technologies. We're going to have them. There's a certain irresistible momentum to technology. Yeah, I mean, the interesting question for me in some sense is, then do you end up saying, well, the jury should hear from an expert about whether this tape was edited properly or what people's perspectives are? Should jurors be told the about the study that, that Joe well, was talking about? Sure. Well, number one, this happened with eyewitness identifications where, uh, and it still does, where the defense, and mind you, if it's a criminal defendant, that person has the maximum uh, leeway to, you know, want to get, you know, expert evidence in because of constitutional rights. The, uh, there would be a psycho usually a psychologist who would explain to the juries what their likely inherent misperceptions are. That will probably happen here as well. What will help, though, is if there are better protocols to somewhat neutralize these biases in the way the cameras are operating, the expert or a police department person could explain to the jury just that, and it might avoid some of these problems. Well, it sounds like this is one of the rare cases where there's somewhat of an agreement where technology is welcomed on all sides. The police like it because it exonerates them from wrongful claims. Defendants like it because it helps them with rightful claims. And we think with all of its problems, it changes police behavior for the better. I think that's true. And most police departments are adopting them where you see some resistance. There's been some uh, resistance in some cities. It's for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one is just cost, if it's a less well-resourced department. Number two, the legitimate concern, we don't want to adopt these too quickly before we know how we're using them. Uh, in other words, honest concerns that we may be misusing them when we get them. But, you know, we can't stop the technology, at least for body cams. They're going to be universal. Thanks so much, Bob. You've been listening to Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight 121. We've been talking today about privacy and about technology and law enforcement with Bob Weisberg. I'm Pam Carlin. I'm Joe Bankman. This has been Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online, or with the Sirius XM app.